I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Oh, I'm just really delighted to be introducing Maggie Nelson tonight. Um, I think she's just one of the most extraordinary writers around um, Blewett's Art of Cruelty. These sort of extraordinary books that braid together multiple strands and that think with extraordinary um, fluidity and spaciousness around ideas that can often seem sewn up, impossible. She unknits them in these very graceful and mesmerising, exciting, passionate ways and I just, I think she's a very, very good thing. So what we're going to do tonight is have a conversation but first of all Maggie's going to read a little bit from the Argonauts. I will. Um, Thank you Olivia. I'm thrilled to be doing this event with Olivia whose writing I admire a lot um, and with whom I think, uh, is this on here all good? Yeah. With whom I think we have a lot of um, uh, uh, overlapping points of kinship. So, um, and I was ill when I was going to do Olivia the favor of interviewing her in Los Angeles, which is where I have flown in from, and I feel very badly about that. And I thought for sure she would not want to now do the other half, which was do the London event. And so I'm very grateful that you did anyway. And that, um, and and so I owe her, and also I also I think owe Olivia um, for. Um, you know, writing one of my favorite pieces of writing about my book, which was the very first thing that came out about the Argonauts, and made me feel as though no matter what happened next, it was all fine, and somebody had understood the book thoroughly. It was all I wanted. It's a great gift if that's the first thing you see. But also in that self-same piece, um, uh, she had you know, kind of called upon the the UK to publish my book, which was uh, you know in publishing circles like a you know a real. Um, I don't know what you want to call it. I was going to say an open hand, but maybe more of a whip or something, but it made it happen, um, is the point, I think. Yes, exactly, and that was also really meaningful to me, because now I get to come here and uh, meet all of you and have um, the first UK edition of this book. So I'll just read a little bit from the beginning um, so that we can talk, which I think will be more, or at least equally interesting, Um, and I'll just read from the start of of the book. So um, October 2007... The Santa Ana winds are shredding the bark off the eucalyptus trees in long white stripes. A friend and I risk the widowmakers by having lunch outside, during which she suggests I tattoo the words hard to get across my knuckles as a reminder of this pose's possible fruits. Instead, the words I love you come tumbling out of my mouth in an incantation the first time you fuck me in the ass, my face smashed against the cement floor of your dank and charming bachelor pad. You had Malloy by your bedside and a stack of cocks in a shadowy, unused shower stall. Does it get any better? 
What's your pleasure, you asked, then stuck around for an answer. Before we met, I had spent a lifetime devoted to Wittgenstein's idea that the inexpressible is contained inexpressibly in the expressed. This idea gets less airtime than his more reverential, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. But it is, I think, the deeper idea. Its paradox is quite literally why I write, or how I feel able to keep writing. For it does not feed or exalt any angst one may feel about the incapacity to express in words that which eludes them. It does not punish what can be said for what by definition it cannot be. Nor does it ham it up by miming a constricted throat. Lo, what I would say were words good enough. Words are good enough. It is idle to fault a net for having holes, my encyclopedia notes. In this way, you can have your empty church with a dirt floor swept clean of dirt and your spectacular stained glass gleaming by the cathedral rafters both, because nothing you say can fuck up the space for God. I have explained this elsewhere, but I'm trying to say something different now. Before long, I learned that you had spent a lifetime equally devoted to the conviction that words are not good enough. Not only not good enough, but corrosive to all that is good, all that is real, all that is flow. We argued and argued on this account, full of fever and not malice. Once we name something, you said, we never see it the same way again. All that is unnameable falls away, gets lost, is murdered. You called this the cookie-cutter function of our minds. You said you knew this, not from shunning language, but from immersion in it, on the screen, in conversation, on stage, on the page. I argued along the lines of Thomas Jefferson and the churches, for plethora, for kaleidoscopic shifting, for excess. I insisted that words did more than nominate. I read aloud to you the opening of philosophical investigations. Slab, I shouted, slab. For a time I thought I had won. You conceded there might be an okay human, an okay human animal, even if that animal used a language, even if its use of language were somehow defining of its humanness, even if humanness itself meant trashing and torching the whole motley precious planet along with its and our future. But I changed, too. I looked anew at unnameable things, or at least things whose essence is flicker, is flow. I readmitted the sadness of our eventual extinction and the injustice of our extinction of others. I stopped smugly repeating Wittgenstein's line, everything that can be thought at all can be thought clearly, and I wondered anew, can everything be thought? And you, whatever you argued, you never mimed a constricted throat. In fact, you ran at least a lap ahead of me, words streaming in your wake. How could I ever catch up, by which I mean, how could you want me? A day or two after my love pronouncement, now feral with vulnerability, I sent you the passage from Roland Bart by Roland Bart, in which Bart describes how the subject who utters the phrase, I love you, is, quote, like the Argonaut renewing his ship during its voyage without changing its name, end quote. Just as the Argo's parts may be replaced over time, but the boat is still called the Argo, whenever the lover utters the phrase, I love you, its meaning must be renewed by each use, as, quote, the very task of love and of language is to give to one in the same phrase inflections which will be forever new, end quote. I thought this passage was romantic. You read it as a possible retraction. In retrospect, I guess it was both. You've punctured my solitude, I told you. It had been a useful solitude, constructed as it was around a recent sobriety, 
long walks to and from the Y through the sordid bougainvillea-strewn back streets of Hollywood, evening drives up and down Mulholland Drive to kill the long nights, and, of course, maniacal bouts of writing, learning to address no one. But the time for its puncturing had come. I feel I can give you everything without giving myself away, I whispered to you in your basement bed. If one does one solitude right, this is the prize. A few months later, we spent Christmas together in a hotel in downtown San Francisco. I had booked the room for us online in the hope that my booking of the room and our time in the room would make you love me forever. It turned out to be one of those hotels that booked for cheap because it was undergoing an astonishingly rude renovation and because it was smack in the middle of the cracked out tenderloin. No matter, we had other business to attend to. Sun filtered through the ratty Venetian blinds, just barely obscuring the construction workers hammering away outside as we attended to it. Just don't kill me, I said as you took off your leather belt, smiling. After lunch, my friend who suggested the hard-to-get tattoo invites me to her office, where she offers to Google you on my behalf. She's going to see if the internet reveals a preferred pronoun for you, since despite or due to the fact that we're spending every free moment in bed together and already talking about moving in, I cannot bring myself to ask. Instead, I've become a quick study in pronoun avoidance. The key is training your ear not to mind hearing a person's name over and over again. Mm -hmm. You must learn to take cover in grammatical cul-de-sacs, relax into an orgy of specificity. You must learn to tolerate an instance beyond the two, precisely at the moment of attempting to represent a partnership, a nuptial even. Deleuze, Parnay say, nuptials are the opposite of a couple. There are no longer binary machines, question-answer, masculine-feminine, man-animal, etc. This could be what a conversation is, simply the outline of a becoming Expert as one may become at such a conversation, to this day it remains almost impossible for me to make an airline reservation or negotiate with my human resources department on our behalf without flashes of shame or befuddlement. It's not really my shame or my befuddlement. It's more like I'm ashamed for or simply pissed off at the person who keeps making all the wrong presumptions and has to be corrected, but who cannot be corrected because the words are not good enough. How can the words not be good enough? Lovesick on the floor of my friend's office, I squint up at her as she scrolls through an onslaught of bright information I do not want to see. I want the you no one else can see, the you so close the third person never need apply. Look, here's a quote from John Waters saying, she's very handsome, so maybe you should use she, I mean, it's John Waters. (laughs) That was years ago, I roll my eyes from the floor, things might have changed. When making your Butch Buddy film by Hooker by Crook, you and your co-writer Silas decided that the Butch characters would call each other he and him, but in the outer world of grocery stores and authority figures, people would call them she and her. The point was not that if the outer world were schooled appropriately, re the characters' preferred pronouns, everything would become right as rain, because if the outsiders called the characters he, it would be a different kind of he. Words change depending on who speaks them. There is no cure. The answer isn't just to introduce new words, boy, B-O-I, cisgendered, androphag, etc., and then set out to reify their meanings, though obviously there is power and pragmatism here. One must also become alert to the multitude of possible uses, possible contexts, the wings with which each word can fly. Like when you whisper, you're just a hole, letting me fill you up. Like when I say, husband. I think that's all I'm going to do.
lovely threads running through it about about language, about what you can do with language, about what we're trying to report on in the world and whether it's reported on a bull. And mm-hmm. I've written down other questions, but actually I kind of want to start with that, like, mm-hmm. are words good enough? Mm-hmm. Where, where are you with that now? <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because, I mean, this book definitely... Because um... it's a live question for a writer and I think we don't kind of pose it often enough. I mean, it depends, I guess, you know, good enough for what, you know... Um... Good enough as in good enough mother. Good enough as in good enough mother. I mean, yes, I think they're good enough um, insofar as... Uh, uh, I mean, I still believe the Wittgensteinian proposition at the beginning about the inex- you know, the expressed containing the inexpressible. Um, and I think, like I say, it's why I write because, you know, I say a lot of things in this book or any book. You know, you, you write a lot of lines and you say things. <laughs> but, um, but you're also, when you're writing a book or, you know, literature, you're trying to make um, something happen that's bigger than the sum of its you know, parts um, you're trying to make. Um, and and that, that thing is fairly inexpressible. You only know it as a writer intuitively when you keep re-editing your draft and feeling the pace or feeling, you know, you get at it by individual word, by individual word, individual mm-hmm. sentence, by individual sentence, but you um, you kind of keep the, your eye on the prize in a very puffy way, which is that if I do, if everything is good enough at every moment... Maybe I will have made the thing, you know, that, that yeah, does something yeah, 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 more yeah, yeah. than the individual parts. And I don't think you can, um, I don't think you can aim to do the latter thing, even though probably all of us as writers would like to. But I think you can only aim at the former thing, you know. I mean, at least I can. That's mm. all I can do. So I think, um, I mean, are they good enough in terms of, uh, you know, do they hold all of the experience of consciousness? Um, and no. Um, not at all, and and certainly um, that conversation about love. Um, I mean, a lot of people, and I'm very grateful for this, have said, you know, oh, what a, what a wonderful love letter to your partner, Harry, you've written, and I'm like, yeah, well, tell, tell it to Harry. Um, but what I more mean by that is that, like, um, written words, like, for a public or something, like, that's another use value of words as another kind of Wittgensteinian, you know, mm-hmm. scene of exchange. That scene of exchange, like what I'm doing with, you know, you all right now, you know, is not the scene of exchange with the beloved, which is not the scene of exchange with the beloved over day after day or whatever. So I think mm-hmm. that that question of being good enough is like, you don't just do it once and you did it <laughs> with language. So I think it's just, it's also, you know, this you perpetual know, reinvention. Yeah. And resolving of the same, yeah. the same problem. I mean, that's why Bart uses a phrase. I let me think about, you know, if you said, I love you today, all the different terms, love you, you know, mm. like love you, you know, I mean, there's so many different, you, you know, you're, it's this. And so many lovers to him, it's been said. Yeah. And, you know, Bart says it's always a demand, you know, no matter how it's posed, you know, um, that might say more about him than it, it, it indeed might <laughs> say more about him. Um, but I think that those notions are really, yeah, they're really interesting just to get into. Um, and, you know, what's amazing about books, too, is they don't... Their, their use value changes. Like I say, words change depending on the context. You know, there is no cure, but that's also true of any um, 
you know, as a book travels in the world, it, mm. its function changes in different mm. contexts as well. And actually, you know, I've read this book lots of times now, and I was reading it again the last couple of days, and it, it's a different book to me again. There are, there are things I hadn't noticed. There are th- I think structurally it's very interesting because the first time you read it, you're reading it for narrative. You're looking to see what happens to the characters, and it felt much more digressive to me initially than when I come back to it uh-huh. now. I think yeah, this yeah. is a very, very tightly packed book. It's incredibly... Yeah. Um, constructed and no, nothing's wasted nothing's digressive oh that's really. nice but yeah I mean to me it feels like that, <laughs> well, that so whenever I read somebody or someone says it's like a digressive it's style digressive. I always think yeah well you should see the cutting room floor if you yeah <laughs> but I mean each you, thing uh, yeah. leads into the next like the stalker story I didn't understand why the stalker story was there the first few readings and this time yeah. I think I'd been thinking about paranoia anyway and you know there, there it is the, the sense is completely right. the sense is completely there okay so um <laughs> There's a there's a scene midway where I think it's actually where you and Harry are hashing out what you've what you've said about him in the book, but you say something that I really liked and that I thought was was interesting to start with, which is I do not yet understand the relationship between happiness and writing or writing and holding. And I just wanted to start there, like what sense yeah. are you making? Because that seemed to me one of the fundamental strands of the book, right? Mm-hmm. It's about happiness, it's about yeah. holding, it's about writing, it's about how you reconcile those different things yeah. in your life, in a life. I mean, I think for a number of years, um, <clears throat> these two books, Jane and the Red Parts, are about my aunt's, uh, the murder of my mother's sister, and um, those two books, and then, well, we could just go down the list, The Art of Cruelty, uh, you can tell what that's about by the title, and then, um, it's not a how-to <laughs> guide, um, The Art of War, um, uh, although it might be, and then, and then Bluettes is... It was supposed to be my big book about pleasure and beauty, but it all about pain. But I mean, I think that for a while, um, you know, my kind of calling card as a writer became, you know, writing about difficult things. Um, and in the red parts in particular. And, 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 but, you know, very difficult, like, kind of uh, dramatizing a reckoning with looking at, in this case, say, you know, this mutilated uh, family member's body and violence towards women in general. Looking, literally, in that book, it's you know, dis- it's discussed as um, moving literally towards a wound, you know, like kind of joking about the self-help, like st- circling the wound, but then moving towards it. But, you know, because it was a courtroom um, book with a lot of projections of harm done, it, it really became about um, just staring at, you know, some of the worst things. So all of this is to say that I like a challenge. So the... <laughs> Um, it seemed to me like it wasn't like I had a handle on writing about darkness or depression or cruelty or violence, but um, but I didn't understand the relationship between writing and holding um, or being good enough or writing and happiness, and they didn't seem like you know writing didn't make me especially happy <laughs> to do, um, didn't make me unhappy to do, but I wasn't. Um, so I think, and, and that conversation, I think, about, from the quote you pulled, um, it has a corollary in kind of queer theory with what's sometimes roughly discussed as, like, theories of, like, queer pessimism, queer shame, mm. queer negativity, and then, you know, queer optimism. Um, a friend of mine wrote a book called Queer Optimism, and, uh, and a kind of conversation about... Um, if for a long time a lot of queer theory had been about, you know, making shame um, out of necessity because it was dumped on queers, you know, making it into your badge, um, that 
was worthwhile and mm. it you know provoked a lot of uh, theorizing about the way to do that, <laughs> um, which we all need to learn how to do. Um, where our shames is our badges, but I think that with this conversation about kind of assimilation and homonormativity and the kind of um, when some of the uh, major obstacles posed by discrimination. Um, might be taken off the table. It was kind of um, a, a flood of kind of um, not that marriage and you know breeding or whatnot is going to make you happy, but more like um, what can we still value about queer subcultures um, uh, that was forged in those fires of the shame and difficulty when we have fought and are winning some uh, you know major victories of taking some of those obstacles off the table, you know? So I think that, so I guess for me personally as a writer and then also with the content, um, it made, with my history as a writer with those books and then with kind of this current questions, it made sense to try and um, write a book about happiness, quote unquote. (laughs) It's interesting because you, you know, this is a book that collapses and collapses binary after binary, but really more demonstrates how entangled all of those binaries are. Yeah. And it seemed like one of one of the binaries that you handle really interestingly is cruelty versus love, that mm-hmm. they aren't separate spaces. Yeah. And you know, you t- like I was thinking about the um Catherine O'P breastfeeding right, photo yeah, with yeah. the she's the cut pervert right. in her chest and she's breastfeeding. So, you know, that that seemed like a sort of icon of it, but also the extraordinary um, section at the end where you're giving birth and Harry's with his mother who's dying yeah. and there's that sense of, you know, people can be very cosy and gooey about giving birth, pregnant ladies mm-hmm. giving birth, having a baby. This sort of cartoonish narrative yeah. and you make it yeah. fucking terrible. I mean, right. there's, there's a line that... <laughs> But not terrifying, yeah, yeah. like, that sounds painful. More, um, it, it, it's in a place of awe in which the red parts is also situated. This mm-hmm. place that's sort of between worlds. And I think Harry says it specifically in his yeah. section of, like, this is a, a space at the edge of the universe where the doors are open. And, yeah. you know, that comes up yeah, in yeah, red yeah. parts too. Yeah, like, yeah, that yeah. place feels yeah. like yeah. a Maggie Nelson kind of territory. Yeah. So it's a complicated happiness yeah. and it's a complicated yeah. violence. Yeah, I mean, not to be too, like, sour grapes with, like, <clears throat> high-class problems, but I remember, like, the New York Times ran the review of the book. It said, um, a pregnancy brings a critic back to her body was the title. Um, <laughs> and I remember thinking, that's really strange because if you'd read anything I'd ever written, you'd know that, like, like I've been, I've, I've been, I've been interested in, in things, certain things for a long time, like, mm. exactly like what you're saying, I think. Yeah. And I think that... The extremity of the body yeah. is kind of always there in different ways. And I think the question about words being good enough... Um, I mean, I'm interested in the banal and writing the daily, and, and um, uh, but I'm also interested in, you know, while we were sitting downstairs and Elaine Scarry's The Body in Pain was strategically maybe placed on the table... Um, but uh, you know her theory there about about torture, like she's nodding, yeah. But um, uh, her theory about torture and pain, <clears throat> you know, being a test case for the you know where language falls away, where language yeah. is no longer of use, um, can't 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 use can't um, can't be used. I think uh, I think that the birth and death passages in this book, um, you know, again, people say like. Well, there are no words for 
you know, you couldn't describe the pain of childbirth, or you couldn't, you know, describe, um, well, Harry's not dying, his mother's dying, but I, but I think, you know, again, I like a challenge, so it seemed like, uh, well, I mean, I sometimes wonder whether or not those injunctions are also ways of not having certain experiences, like giving it a go, <laughs> you know, like, why not try? And so, mm-hmm. I mean, the birth story... Um, well, it's hedged around with taboos as well, isn't it? Because you, the risk is that you're a narcissistic woman speaking about her embodied experience. Yeah, and, and one of the most surprising like things Krause. in this book of all to me was like how many times people have asked me how I gave myself permission to write that story, <laughs> given how many birth stories there already are. And I'm always like, show me, tell me, show me them, because like if you're pregnant and like you know you might want to read any of them and there I did there weren't any like I, I mean I mean in literature not like in Vogue or something you know so um I mean I love Vogue I just mean like a, you know something welcomed as um part of you know a human experience that might be able to be attended to in language you know mm-hmm. and so it seemed you know just worth giving it a go and then yeah one of yeah. the one of the many I mean there's an awful lot that you're doing about gender in this book but I think one of the really nice things that I found is the, the, at the end of the day it's human animals yeah. and you come back to that a lot like yeah. these two human animals yeah. or, so it it kind of sk- it's one of the canny ways of skating away yeah. from any sort of yeah. working the trap around yeah. that seems like a good yeah. way of doing it yeah. I like it yeah and, I mean Harry's got okay and animal tattooed on, on each of the so like it's like being okay animal so it's a, a kind of a, it's a family joke but um but yeah <laughs> that's nice good tattoo. yeah um, yeah okay we do i mean you just touched oh, but on i did it. want to say one thing i just okay, can yeah. say about the binaries because i don't think i really addressed that part of your question which may or may not really been a question but i do think that um, I mean, I was joking about bluets, like being trying to write about pleasure and then write about pain. But, mm-hmm. but I think that, I mean, that's something that I think is very, it's become very interesting to me. And I'm sure that I'm sure I'd be curious to know what you feel like in writing about drinking and writing about loneliness. What you touched on is kind of like <laughs> the cheerful books. I know. But they are, they are in their way. No, they really are. And I think, and I think partly why they are though is, is precisely this thing, which is that I think. Um, you su- one summons the shadow mm. of what of one subject. Excuse me. So, like in the cruelty book, I ended mm. up writing a lot about compassion yeah. and freedom and kind of notions that seem to me the opposite of a sadistic or claustrophobic emotion. Because you just by going into them. You, so I think in this book, it, yeah, I mean you're right. It was not an accident that in, in, as I attempted to kind of approach Eve Sedgwick's in particular theories about. Um, happiness dead on near the end it it did become about paranoia because paranoia um well she's very interested in Sullivan Tompkins and Tompkins was a psychologist who who paired um affects you know in affect theory and so um you know for him pleasure and shame are a pair because you have a feeling and then kind of naturally in your body something like to kind of keep you away from the excess of like too much pleasure like something comes up to diminish or corral the other feeling so mm-hmm. shame corral like oh my god you seem so excited oh, too excited too excited not you know like yeah corral the feeling and so you have and it's not necessarily value laden like his description of affect pairs i think has been so interesting to people because precisely because it's kind of value neutral in a way because he's more interested in the hydraulics i guess 
of how there's a kind of regulating systems. Mm. Um, I think that that's interesting if you think about cruelty or compassion or, you know, pleasure, shame or pain or, you know, optimism, pessimism, like the way in which... Um, tenderness and brutality. Tenderness, yeah, that the ways in which um, uh, it's not so much one's here and one's over there, but the way that they intertwine and... and um, kind of act as controls on each other mm. in a certain way. And then another one that seems to run through this book really very deeply is freedom and devotion. Right. Yeah, yeah. should be an opposition, and yeah. yet you find all kinds of interesting ways of making them making them intersect, finding freedoms through devotion that perhaps you hadn't realised were there previously. Although the domestic yeah. is always in your book, but... In your books, but, yes. No, I was going to say, that was one of the things that I was just... When I read Olivia's piece on this book, and the last part was about she freedom, and I was like, I was like, I was like, that is so great because, I mean, because this book actually started as a book I wanted to write about devotion and freedom. You did, I did, in a totally different idiom that had nothing to do with my um, home life, for lack of a better word. Um, uh, but then events of my life. Um, I mean, this always happens, right? Like, mm. um, I was writing a book about the color blue, and then a friend of mine had to get, you know, in a terrible accident and become a quadriparalytic, and I ended up taking care of her that year. And while I was trying to write my book about the color blue, and I was like, oh, this is not what I imagined, <laughs> you know? Like, and how are these things um, related? Um, but, yeah, so in this book, I think that that paradigm about freedom and devotion ended up being refracted through um, presumptions about care being a diminishment of freedom mm. um, and the ways in which that did not seem to me to be um, which the case. Yeah. yeah, and I think you sort of you make a case for it being much more political than we tend to think of it, that the act of okay. devotion is much more political, much more radically political. And again, you know, the book, even though it's like about care and devotion in some ways, um, I feel like I'm always a little bit careful to remind people lest they get kind of too like, oh, you know, it's just a book of a show. She's so happy and she found someone she really liked and, you know, smug or whatever. But like, but that the, um, she's all fine and fair, but the, um, uh, what was I going to say? It was about, oh, devotion, which is, that, you know, there are a lot of instances in this book <clears throat> where the care is not good enough. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, my partner is adopted and which is a you know given up at birth which was a you know a very uh profound instance of when care is not good enough you know mm-hmm. and then the care you know he got was good enough but then the question of you know they're just like there's a lot of you know when his mother is sick and moves in with us we were not able to mm-hmm. um take care of that, her adequately in her, through her cancer we were I wouldn't say we were poor caretakers. I would just say we were not, our life was not set up to care for her. And, um, you know, there's a, there are just many instances where, I mean, I think all of us um, make hard decisions between when we can give good enough care and when we can't. So I think that that, that conflict of um, kind of self-care, like, I can't live in a one-bedroom apartment with your mother dying of cancer on the floor, like I, like, I can't give her care in this environment, which then translates into her only choice is to, you know, get substandard care somewhere else. I mean, those are the kind of choices that we make, you know, all the time and mm. make, you know, ugly to necessary decisions, you know. Mm. 
But then, again, that's another thing that I like about the book is that it doesn't sort of perform these idealised rights of care. It's not yeah. about that. It's about how we actually care in our actual bodies yeah. and our actual lives yeah. with impossible circumstances, which sometimes we can't yeah. rise to and sometimes we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's, yeah. Yeah. it's complicated. Yeah. I think bringing Winnicott in at this point would be would be good. Um <laughs> You have this great joke title for the book, which is Why Winnicott Now? Right, yeah, to yeah, be yeah. like, well, why Winnicott right, Now? No, no, because no. We, we're both very interested yeah. in him on, in lots of levels. And I, I wanted to know why he seemed to you sort of such an appropriate figure, both for this book, but also for this kind of cultural moment. Well, you know, I took, when I was in grad school, I took a class with Eve Sedgwick, a queer theorist, called um, Non-Oedipal Models of Psychology. And we kind of did all... You know, everyone from Melanie Klein to Deleuze to Winnicott to just kind of people who just weren't on the Oedipus train, you know. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think because she was a queer theorist, the subtext of that class was, of course, um, you know, uh, having an ear out for, you know, what, what Eve would have called... Um, more than queer, she would have called them, you know, non, uh, non-homophobic um, models of psychology, you know. And um, mm-hmm. I think that, uh, and she found many in Winnicott, and I think mm-hmm. it in part had to do with, um, I mean, homophobia may seem off the point, um, uh, what I'm going to say, which is more about gender than it is about sexuality, but, um, but you know, the notion of good enough mothering um, I mean, you guys know, and I'm totally, you know, I, I told Olivia beforehand, I was like, I hate talking about Winnicott, like, especially like in London, because I'm just like the American really doesn't know anything about, about Winnicott. And like, uh, but, but yes, exactly, I know, I'm like, I'm, I'm like shrinking at the top of but, but I will say that, you know, but that, but that, what that theory came out of, so far as I understand, um, was that, you know, there are many children who couldn't be cared for during the war and who had to have good enough mothering taken away from their mothers, you know, or their families mm-hmm. um, during the bombings, and that, and that somebody was going to have to be able to do it, you know, was going to have to be able to, to adequately hold all those removed children. Um, and I think that, but that gave rise to this notion that it doesn't have to be, you know, the mother, you know, gendered as such who can do good enough holding. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, if you live with, I do with the parent, Harry, my partner, who's um, uh, doesn't see himself reflected in uh, versions of motherhood, but also doesn't really see himself reflected in versions of fatherhood. Mm. Um, but still feels himself very much to be as he is a parent and parenting and doing that labor um, it it really can bring into um, view what those activities are like that are not dependent on the gendered job of the person who does them which is not to Mm. say um, this book I feel like tries to do I'm not sure if it succeeds entirely but it it tries to do this is kind of the having it both ways thing which I think is very difficult but it tries to both explore that space, the non-gendered points of care, yeah. um, especially, and you've written well about this too, but, you know, um, using things like the AIDS crisis or, you know, instances of, mm. you know, care that are invisible to people looking for one model of care and they're missing yeah. these huge networks of care that were created that don't resemble systems of kinship people um, had seen before because they're full of people who were invisible to them performing yeah. those acts of care. So I think on the one hand, there's a lot to be done there. And then on the other hand, this is the having it both ways part, you know, 
I do spend some time with um, elements of what you might call, you know, biological maternity mm-hmm. um, because I'm interested in. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Um how to keep both those things in the bowl, you know, yeah. so that you don't have to obliterate yeah. the capacities of a body to give birth or breastfeed or whatnot in order to talk about the capacities for a non-gendered uh, space of doing... But you also don't have to reify it in a sense that yeah. removes the other experience, yeah. which is something that feminism at large needs to learn. Yeah, so I think it was um, the kind of... Um, uh, yeah, so there were... A lot of people think... I don't know what the discourse is like here per se, but a lot. What do you say? It's the same. It's the same. Okay, great. But a lot of people think that there is a, you know, or at least the media likes to make a lot of this kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of, you know, uh, incontrovertible fight between, you know, a kind of. a non-transphobic future and one in which anything about materiality of the body um, and gender can be addressed, like that they can never happen at the same time. So I think in some ways um, I was just trying to put something out also as literature that could also just say, like, um, not only are these not like, um, you know, trans-exclusionary radical feminists like fighting trans people like and not only are they not not always like over there like sometimes you can have people like in the same kitchen table who are like talking about things and exchanging ideas about what it means to be a gender or whatever and that like and that conversation um brings us together it doesn't always bring us apart Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. and actually we can tolerate dissent and disagreement yeah we can also tolerate paradox yeah um well we can't a lot of the time but yeah a lot of the time like that there's a lot of i mean which is why i you know quote, you know, the wonderful Denise Riley, who says, um, you know, you know, the category of woman is one on which feminism, you know, it's the shifting sands on which feminism has always swayed, you know, and, mm. and from Sojourner Truth saying, you know, ain't I a woman, even though I pull loads, you know, mm. uh, you know, and I'm whipped on the fields, like, and I don't resemble your white womanhood, but ain't I a woman? I mean, from, I mean it's just, it's just always been the category, a, a category that has had the ain't I a woman, um, element of it yeah. as a constitutive piece so it's a mistake yeah. I think to um, think that in any particular episodic discussion um, 
that that the sands are fundamentally changed. Yeah, yeah, I think that's so crucial. How are we doing for time? Mm -hmm. Someone who's getting towards audience questions. (laughs) Okay, well, I've got one more question which relates to that. Um, I was reading an interview, um, a bad interview, I'd say, I won't say which interview it was, with you, um, where the interviewer was kind of agitated about why you weren't more concrete about Harry's transition and um, there was something about I wanted a concrete paragraph explaining who Harry was, is, became, which seemed like a complete point missing. Yeah, I know you know. A complete point missing. Of, the, of what the yeah. entire project of the book was. I don't, I don't want to talk about that. I'm not, yeah, I'm not yeah. particularly interested in that. But it made, I've been thinking about it a lot today, and it made me think about, um, I'm kind of obsessed with Eve's um, paranoid reading versus reparative uh-huh, reading, yeah, and what yeah, reparative me reading means, yeah. really. But it struck me that the interviewer's desire to have that clarified, to have a sort of before and after notion of what somebody's gender transition is, is a paranoid reading, and it's a paranoid mm-hmm. reading that we're culturally obsessed with right now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the sort of bathroom bills, the stuff yeah. about, is somebody biologically female? This yeah. sort of ho- horrific language that seems very invested in finding out the truth of what a person is, yeah. as if that would, as yeah. if genitalia will tell you anything. But it also made me think how much this book, what you're doing in terms of tolerating fluidity is a reparative reading, which I feel like is something that I've been trying to make sense of for, uh-huh. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. a very yeah. long time. And I wonder just what you, you know, yeah. this is a concept you think about a lot as well. Yeah, I mean, reparative reading, I mean, which is... In that, I mean, you, I still don't yeah. know what she even meant by it. I know, like, I was going to say, that. I was going to say that, like, there's a lot of conversation about what Cedric means about reparative reading. I mean, I think... Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the line of hers I quote in here where is when she says um, the paradox of saying, I think she's talking about Jack Smith, uh, for those of you who know Jack Smith, but saying, like, um, how strange it is that often the most paranoid people <laughs> can develop the most reparative, you know, artistic practices or something, and you can, like, meet them and be like, oh, my God, that guy's crazy paranoid, whatever. How is the art making me feel so possible and free and, you know, whatever? And, like, but that, that you know, but again, that's kind of back to the hydraulics of, like, how we... Um, you know, what we're able to offer each other that we may not be able to, like, offer ourselves all the time, you know. So I think that... Um, I'm writing about Jack Smith's oh, are you archive really? right now. Oh, fascinating. There's a lot of paranoia in there. Yes, a lot, example. yeah. No, yeah, just, like, so. a stunning amount. And I think... Um, but I like your thought very much that the reifying categories or kind of obsession with transition is a paranoid... Um, mm. mode because um, you know many many times while going around with this book I've had the sentence in my head which I don't say but I'll say during the night where I'm always like it's not the crying game okay because like people <laughs> the big reveal people ask me and I'm kind of like do you get out much like because you know I mean a, a lot of people live in a world where you might fuck somebody when you're not totally sure what their gender is it happens you know it's like but, I, but I'm gathering that <laughs> Some people don't, so I've learned that, that that's true. But, um, you know, I don't know, that was all college was to me. It was like, it was that. But anyway, that was a long time ago. Um, but I think that, like, there are ways in which, um, yeah, that there's, like, a... Um, uh, like when you're having a baby and people say, oh, do you know what it is? And, and it always took me a minute to be like, who they mean... What's its gender, you know, because I'd be like, it's a human baby, you know, and, and, then I, and then I'd be like, no, that's not what they mean, but I think that, um, but the phrase, do you know what it is, 
began to stitch in my head to me this this paranoia with like the way that we attach gender as like the ultimate category of what it is, you know. And so I think that um, it's a. Um, I mean, the good news is that uh, the good news is is that if you start living or seeing a different way, it's a surprisingly easy habit to shake. <laughs> it's not actually as hard as people think that it is. Um, uh, but I think, but you have to go through, but you have to go through that um, either by yourself, uh, by a reckoning with your own um, failure to always be a, a single uh, being. <laughs> um, uh, or by being close to people who, um, uh, or being in a culture in which in which people, you know, flicker in and out of many things. So I think it's, a, yeah. But I but I like that idea that, and I don't know. I think again we're kind of back to where we started about writing books, like in terms of doing something that some being greater than its mm. parts. That I think, I don't think you can try and make reparative work. You know, no. I think I think if it's helpful to somebody else, um, like with my books. Uh, Whenever I've had the really kind of hitting bottom feeling that this is all for me, God damn it, or like I'm just going to, you know, write this, like a real slash and burn feeling, um, a, a kind of a very closed narcissistic slash and burn feeling as a writer, you know, those moments have usually been the ones people have found, told me are most meaningful to mm. them. Mm. Um, Specificity. Yeah, and I think just like, People always say, who are you writing for? And I'm like, I think, again, like if you're just very focused on the project and having it be what it needs to be, then people who want to need to find it will, will, will find it. But I don't, I don't know that uh, offering reparative experience is something that can be, or at least for me, addressed mm. head on. I don't even know if Jack Smith... You know, I doubt he was. I don't think he was thinking that. He was just like, "Hey, yeah. let me print that." Exactly. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> yeah, it's us who finds it. Mm-hmm, I think it mm-hmm. comes. It comes to the. Re- I mean, it comes from attention as well. Yeah. Okay, you guys. Um, we're going to switch to audience questions. Yeah, I'll just now. say my last thing about the, which I love about this quote, just because you know Gertrude Stein. When people have said like, "Why don't you have commas in your, in your writing?" and she said, "You know." God, you know, it's so bossy to tell people when to stop or breathe. You know, why don't they just, you know, figure out by themselves where they want to breathe in the middle of a sentence? And, I, and it, to me, I love this line because it was very like, um, it epitomized Stein's paradox, which is that like, on the one hand, that's like radically a liberating idea, like breathe when you want, you know, what do I care? You know, like, and on the other hand, you know, you can't get through a Steinian sentence without feeling kind of, um, you know, tyrannized um, by her sentence structure. So it's kind of offering radical liberty and radical disciplinary <laughs> yeah, measures simultaneously. So. Hi, thank you. That was wonderful. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between sex and language in your work and kind of sex not necessarily um, being described uh, just as a physical act, but as something sort of ecstatic or something that might like, mm. bring forth language with it. Great. Um, well, you know, it's funny. I actually feel kind of prudish in that, like, I don't really... Um, I'm, I'm a great student and lover of a lot of sex writing, you know? It's like a, a field of great interest to me. <laughs> but, um, but I've never tried to do um, 
I've never tried to do sex writing so far as I understand it. Like I'm thinking about like, I don't know if you guys know Bruce Benderson, but he has yeah. this great book, The Romanian, where there's this long description of like, come on the eyelash um, on like, you know, from like the Romanian hustler that, you know, is like after he's ejaculated on him and he's talking about what it looks like to look at the room through the kind of kaleidoscope of come. And like, I mean, to, to me that paragraph is very emblematic of like what I think of as sex writing, kind of like, just really spending some time with it, you know? Um, and I don't do that very often. I think um, in this book and in Bluettes a little bit, um, they're more, this sounds really nerdy, but just forgive me, but they're, they're more kind of experiments with, um, you know, people talk about like Latinate and Germanic words back to back and how you can get this effect of kind of like the Latinate's very like, you know, a flow whatever, then you say word like fuck and, it's, and it has a different, you know, sound. Um, and I think that I'm a little bit more involved with the language experiment of those tones than I am in like just going all in for describing the ecstasis of, of sex. Mm -hmm. But, you know, hopefully it'll be a long life and I can keep, keep trying. And, um, uh, but I think that, but I think that there is, um, I mean, I was actually thinking I was rereading, um, Olivia's book, The Lonely City, terrific, amazing book, and this is not why it's terrific and amazing, but she quotes a part of The Art of Cruelty about meat making. Oh, um, yeah. And I was thinking, uh, and it was a really inventive and interesting, I thought, use of that, but in that chapter about meat in The Art of Cruelty, I'm talking about um, uh, and the pleasures of being uh, made meat. <laughs> like lo losing subjectivity in a sense, you know, through, um, uh, through sex. Um, but I say, and, and you quote, like, um, the problem is, you know, you have to have lived your life enough, not as meat to know the difference, you know? So, um, mm -hmm. if you're continually objectified or victimized or whatnot, there's not going to be any great frisson in, um, in, in letting go of, uh, of that. But I do think that, um, you know, someone once called this book like a bottom manifesto and that seemed totally fine to <laughs> it me. It totally is. Um, I think it totally is, and I think that it's a, um, and I think, but there is something I'm getting at somewhere in this weird triangle I'm now making for you, where you've got, like, the Romanian Kamarlash here, and meat making here, and I don't know, something about the organizers over here, but I'm going to stop, but I think that, um, but I do think that, um, yeah, I'll just stop there. <laughs> Good question. No, yeah, Um, this is a question, I guess, about autobiography. Um, and I was just wondering if you could con confirm the suspicion that I had about, about your, your writing. Because um, it seems to me like that your your work in, in this book, um, and maybe you know the, the work of other writers like uh, Wayne Kestenbaum and, and Ben Werner, and I guess uh, Eileen Miles, that, um, that distinguishes your work uh, as a memoirist, you know, a writer and memoirist from other instances um, of writing a memoir is, is the New York School. Mm. And, I, and I just mm. wonder, I mean, like, you know, from every, you know, from, from Frank O'Hara's personism mm -hmm. right through to Ivy Miles' mm -hmm. work. Um, so I, I, I guess maybe, yeah, is, is, um, is, is that an important touchstone for you? Yeah. I mean, I wrote a book about the New York School um, <clears throat> called Women, the New York School and Other True Abstractions, and... Um, and it was interesting, actually, I was talking this morning uh, to an interviewer who was asking me about my, what I thought about the term confessional writing, and I was actually saying, I said, well, you know, 
I've, I've, I've thought and written about that a lot, but I said, you know, when I hit Frank O'Hara and he had, you know, personism, which he actually first said he wanted to call personalism, but then they're like, or he found out there was like already like a self-help movement called personalism or something. So we had to go with personism, but the kind of joke of personism was like, you know, that you could just pick up the phone and call somebody as opposed to write, you know, um, writing the poem, but that there was some kind of, uh, uh, you know, equal equality of impulse or something between that kind of ease of communication. Um, whereas the confessional scenario is, you know, obviously an incredibly fraught, you know, very fraught, i.e. like partitioned um, <laughs> scenario where you're unburdening something that's very private. And I think that the kind of New York school um, comfort with, uh, I mean, whether it's in Frank O'Hara, whether it's like with cruising or whether it's with just walking the streets. I mean, a lot that Olivia writes about with David Vonerovich and other things in The Lonely City, like um, uh, the kind of... Uh, the kind of public living and the performance of the private and public that doesn't presume um, that doesn't presume a uh, a privatized confessional space, but rather presumes this continuum is very important to me. And I think it's why I don't really respond so well with the questions about like like how do you write so personally or something because. Um, I think it just feels to me like an easier flow than other people might be imagining. And I do think the New York school um, is probably part of that. And it doesn't, I don't know if it has to be the New York school proper. I mean, I could be just describing a kind of flannery or urbanity. Um, I think about, I mean, I don't know if this book is big here, but Jane Jacobs' book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, just kind of about urban planning. You probably, I'm sure you probably read that. Yeah. You know, like, but her, her discussions of, you live in London, you also, you know, like the distances between like, um, you know, between like, I have a neighbor and like, I see them take out their trash and we kind of know each other, but we're not, I'm not going to like puncture their space by saying, oh, what's in your trash bin this morning? You know, like, like, but you, you, these kind of negotiated relations as we move through the world, I think is, um, to me, very related to forms of writing and performing this often. But were you saying, I'm curious that Ben Lerner and Eileen Miles and, um, uh, I can't remember your first one, but that, that they that they were also New York School related, or you think this? Uh, well, yeah. Wayne oh, Wayne Kestenbaum, yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. It's just like um, it seems that that you have the sense of sincerity, but you're also not enshrined in drenched in subject. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a long time ago, when I mostly wrote poetry, I, people would say like, you know, well, the poets you like, whatever. And I always felt like I felt like a weird combination of like. Like my Sylvia Plath and Frank O'Hara love were like totally equal, <laughs> and it felt kind of like that weird strain, whatever that is, uh, you know, of just kind of melodramatic darkness and totally, you know, you know, joie de vivre sociality seemed really normal to me <laughs> as a coupling. You know? So yeah. I might just throw something into that as well. I was chairing an event with Chris Krauss last week and she got asked the same she got asked a question about confessional writing as if she'd sort of invented it with I Love Dick and her answer was like, Have you guys read the New York school? Like there's a there's a lineage here and I thought that was interesting that we can sometimes forget that it's a really long yeah, way I mean, of people talking in in both heartfelt and ironized ways about themselves. Yeah, and also just like when people, I'm very happy because it's self-aggrandizing and people say like, oh, it seems like you invented a genre or something. But when you know so much, all of your heroes in the genre that you're writing in, you know, from like 
Montaigne to, you know, Hervé Goubert to like, you know, people that you just love. Uh, it, you know, Roland Barthes, obviously, this whole book is like a lover's discourse, you know, or Roland Barthes by Roland Barthes, like mm. mirror in a way. Um, it, it seems silly to talk about like writing in a new genre. It, it seems like people just have to kind of like shift what they thought of as the canon of personal writing and, and, and look mm. at a different canon, you know. More questions? Are there more questions? Um, I've got to apologize in advance because I've got a bit of cold, so I might use the train of thought. No worries. Um, I was wondering about, it's quite the tangent, just sort of leading up what you were talking about with professional writing. Um, how do you think of technology in terms of your writing? Particularly in the way that it's allowed some of those gender binaries to be broken down into sort of reassignment surgery, but also particularly in this book, how I mean, it's, it's something that could happen before, but it's sort of the ease of reappropriating other texts and sort of making it more seamless. And then also, because I was also like Chris Krauss talk, talking about new modes of confessional writing that are sort of enabled by blogging or, or Facebook or Twitter, something like that. That's an interesting question. So when you're saying technology, you're kind of putting together like bodily technologies and then virtual technologies, like both. No, I'm just asking, kind of like yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess just in a really yeah. sense as a sort of tool um, or something that enables something else. So yes, I get that's not very helpful. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's good. I mean, I think. Um, I mean, I'm. I talk about it a little bit in this book that I'm not. Uh, I'm I'm a little uh, technophobic, um, so I think I think it's an interesting moment where, like, again, like since I feel like the models for the kind of writing that I'm doing in here, um, I mean, very, very specifically the cita marginal citations, which you know, which are taken from Bart's uh, The Neutral, um, uh, because they're because I'm often using old models, you know, there can be a kind of dissonance when people say like, oh, you know, Maggie's writing books like for the Tumblr era, you know, or something. And, and you're like, I am like, what's Tumblr? And so it's, um, it's unnerving in a way. Um, I mean, and I, and I've thought about it because I've thought, um, I mean, I think it's kind of what you're related a little bit to what Olivia was saying about uh, digression versus like making this object. I guess, you know, to me, um, because I work a lot in ways that might not always be successful or apparent, but because I do work a lot on the logic of the whole book. Um, like when people tell me like they taught bluettes in like a class about collage or something, like I'm glad for it. It doesn't bother me because that's great teaching the book, but like, um, uh, the notion of like a simultaneity, simultaneity of collage as opposed to like sequence um, is really, uh, uh, you know, it's a meaningful difference to me. And I don't, I don't really do collage work. You know, I, I think of them as more kind of experimental narratives um, meant to be ran from from front to back. Anyway, this is a long way of saying that there are certain ways of um, the mind working on the internet that don't uh, necessarily. Uh, uh, you know, they're not direct influences to me, but I will say that the part of the question about the bodily technologies that, um, 
you know, you guys know the book Testo Junkie, Paul Preciado's book, you know, and, and that book was really, I kind of, I think I read Testo Junkie probably about halfway through this book. And, you know, I love the way that Preciado talks about, you know, Preciado describes, you know, heterosexual intercourse as a, you know, as a, as a tried and true technology for baby making, you know what I mean? But like everything is like a technology, um, you know, in, uh, in, you know, kind of Preciado, you know, via Foucault or whatever. But I like, um, there are, when I think about, when I think about the freedom of the kind of denaturalizing space of thinking about things as technologies, all things, including the most like natural thing, you know, like guys and girls getting it on, um, it helps me out because, um, <clears throat> because I think this kind of, um, dystopic image of like the transsexual as somebody who is taking more advantage of, um, of pharmaceutical or surgical technologies than any of uh, any of us who might identify as a cisgendered person is a very, I mean, Preciado really points out how it's a very um, wrong-headed equation um, by going through the pill or going through, you know, going through any number of technologies that shape our, I mean, this is straight to like Donna Haraway and the Cyborg Manifesto and all that, but, you know, I think it's much more interesting to uh, see the ways in which we're all interpenetrated by by technologies of various kinds than it is to isolate, you know, one kind of person and say, you know, do you know that you're deeply interfacing, you know, perhaps in the collaborative way with, you know, the, you know, pharmacopornographical industry? And it's like, you know, most trans people will be like, tell me something I haven't thought about, you know, a lot, lot longer than you have. Um, so I think it's, I know, so I think that that's, um, anyway, yeah. Can you say a bit more about the technophobia then, please? You said you were technophobic. Oh, well, like, uh, I don't know. I'm just, um, I mean, it's just so cliche to say, but um, I just am, uh, uh, I'm just, I'm just guarded about my time, and I feel like I spend too much time uh, in front of a screen as it is, so I just don't add anything and, and certain things yeah like all that passed me by like there was nothing virtuous about it it just passed me by <laughs> like and I kind of had this feeling like and everyone's like oh you're on MySpace or something and I was like what's that and I thought like oh this will happen with Facebook too like in like a few years people will be like oh Facebook no one does that anymore either so I just kind of like they'll just all keep passing me by it doesn't seem like that's true with Facebook it seems like it's had more staying power but um in my space, but I just, um, yeah, they just passed me by. I mean, I think, you know, I'd be curious, Olivia, about the last, is it the very last chapter? It is the very last chapter. Of the and I left study. Facebook straight after I wrote that chapter. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. that was the end I mean, I thought that it was very interesting. I'm very, um, it's kind of like I'm a, I, don't, I don't drink, and since I quit drinking, it's kind of like I have the same enjoyment, like hearing people talk about they're drinking or things as I do with hearing people talk about social media or something. Cause like you, it's like a very pleasurable place to like, just feel like you can listen to people just fighting this thing out where they're just like, Oh my God, you know, I'm so glad you, know, so you never started, you know, never get on it. Like you'll never get off it. And I'm just like, okay, like, like I, I feel like I feel a lot of really interesting. I know how a lot of people feel about yeah. social media um, in this way that I feel like is very interesting to me, like not doing it. I just can really feel the feelings of other people <laughs> doing but that's probably why I like that chapter so much. I, you're, um, My nose dive into it. Yeah, but I do other things. 
and you know, so it doesn't matter. It's not like when you're describing waking up, it's very memorable for those of you who've read The Lonely City, just like waking up and that first thing, you know, Olivia's saying, like just dragging the Mac into bed and you know, twittering, like right, you know, from the very start, just like being greeted by a chorus of thousands of voices first thing in the morning and stuff. I mean, I think it's like, I mean, we all have, I think, versions of that these days. But. So you quit right after that. Yeah, I mean, I'm still on Twitter, but I quit Facebook. Mm-hmm. And it was Facebook, I felt like it was the really toxic space because it felt so sort of... Toxic in its performances. I just I wasn't on board for it. And yeah, I didn't care anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. How are we doing for time? One more. It's behind you. Sorry. Oh, there's one here too, though. So maybe those two, and then we're done. Thank you. Um, there's a point in the Argonauts That's great. Um, I think it's Anne Carson actually who has a very lovely passage about dirt um, in her essay "Dirt and Desire," where because it's local, she says, you know, dirt's quoting. She's quoting Mary Douglas, but saying it's very relative. So, like, you know, a piece of egg is dirt in the British Library, but you know, not elsewhere. You know, so like, I think so. There's that. But it, putting that aside, um, yeah, I mean, Eileen was talking in that interview about um, how. Um, about how to not have the the shameful um, <clears throat> badge of it being all about you that people are always saying like, well, I'm really writing about the culture, or really, you know, you, you know, you can look at me, but you know, it's, it's a mask, or you know, it's a metaphor. I'm using a voice, and I mean, um, you know, proof rock isn't just about T.S. Eliot's feelings; it's about you know the whole state of you know European society, uh, you know, you know, mid-century. I mean, it's like I think. I mean, it's kind of like, if you just presume that all those things are true, that, of course, writing about the self will tell you about the culture, and writing about the culture will tell you about the self-writing. I mean, if you presume that interplay, um, I think Eileen is, she's joking around, saying, like, oh, I just don't need all that, that, like, I'm not going to sit here and give you a big song and dance. I mean, at the same time, Eileen is the first person to have many, many, many (laughs) inventive metaphors for the way she uses self in her text. She talks about, I mean, she's created a character called Eileen Miles that she <clears throat> writes what she you knows she calls auto you know what she calls auto fiction is fiction with Eileen Miles as the character who she imagines she'll often say is like um uh you know like a comic book character and she's just writing that character in frame by frame. I mean she she has all kinds of ways of talking about her character creation of herself. So I think um but what she's willing to do in addition to all those interesting conversations about because, you know, I'm not the self. I mean, each of books of mine that are have a first person, um, I kind of have decided what that first person will sound like. Um, and it's, they're different, I think. I mean, I have, like, a certain sound, but then there are certain things, like, Bluets has a kind of a faux scientized, you know, but now we shall talk as if, you know, there's a kind of um, uh, intellectual distance that I'm pr- pretending um, uh there's other other decisions. So, I mean, I think there are lots of interesting conversations one can have about construction of self in autobiography. But I think what Eileen's doing there is just um, being willing to just own the thing that 
you know, I mean, again, it's kind of, it's a queer move, like, before somebody calls you, you know, a dirty faggot, you say, no, I'm the dirty faggot, you know, she's just like, oh, no, the dirty secret is it's all about me, like, you can, you're not going to turn me with, like, you know, the reason you're writing really just all about you, you know, it's like, you know, she's like, I got there first and yesterday, so. <laughs> There's a, where he goes, And the first step in his work is like places become really uncool. So, oh, great, okay, great, okay, good. Um, now I've left. Uh, yeah, right. yeah, not Olivia's off, it died. Um, I guess uh, my question is kind of about, I mean, I know primarily through um, the Argon Watson books, but I also know that you're a poet as well. And I'm curious as to how you approach, I guess it's more about sort of sensibilities and approach, mm -hmm. how you approach like a poem and how you would approach writing a book like this. I suppose it's fitting. And this is the last question: Is when do you know when to stop? Do like, does a whole, does, is one of these books for sale started as a poem, or like, do you know when things kind of end? And, you know? Yeah, it's a good, a really good question. I mean, um, <clears throat> you know, Bluette started as poems, um, and I just didn't like them. <laughs> they just seemed really precious. I kept imagining the like coffee table book about like poems about the color blue, you know, and it just I was like I just didn't like it. And then when I took away their line breaks, I felt like everything got a lot more. Um, uh, there was just a kind of sense of conflict that I started being able to create. So I think, um, but that was probably the last book of mine that that they had a very direct relationship to like a poss the possibility of a line break, you know. I think. Um, uh, for a long time, poetry was contrary to uh, what these books are like, um, which are very quote heavy or really sh you know elucidating the trail of one's thinking. Um, the kind of poetry that I liked or liked writing was more like uh, Paul Ceylon or Robert Creeley, um, people who. who I really love the idea of kind of um, an ordinary language poetry where you could be talking about something very, very complicated, but using like five nouns, you know, like apple, you know, Moses, you know, door, whatever, and that you were just kind of marshalling uh, this very plain, plain language. I wasn't like a um, talking about my poet self, like she's dead, but like I, I, I wasn't uh, in that. I wasn't a, um, I wasn't very interested in like a Baroque um, or very discursive kind of poetry. Um, so I think in some ways. Um, uh, but, you know, poetry to me is very performative. So you're performing um, something. And when, when I was writing the book Jane, when it would get more discursive, like I wanted to say something, um, you know, poetry, it, my poetry anyway, um, would, would break down on, under the burden of trying to explain something or tell you about the dates or whatever. So that book ended up being kind of half poetry and half prose because there were just certain things I was trying to write as poems but they just, the poetry couldn't hold, the lyricism just would die, you know? And, and then I let, I let a lot of the poems in there be very flat, kind of like not good poetry um, at the service of making a narrative poem um, where, where individual poems couldn't be taken out and be like good, good lyric experiences. They, they would have to be read as part of the narrative. But I think that when, but when I wrote that, I began to be, you know, more interested in, um, in, uh, <coughs> Uh, just in 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 structure, and I think that since I was not, most of my poems are single page poems. Um, I never 
I never, uh, I never could do as many structural large-scale experiments and say as much, I guess, you know. And I think in some ways prose is so lovely for me because it can be very, like, poetic um, while you're also getting a lot of work done. <laughs> um, and, and I think, uh, yeah, and I don't, I don't have an idea what, will, what impulse will come next between those, you know. It really just seems like... Whatever comes next. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.